Well, I trust that you were encouraged last week by our special guest, Chris Mueller, and his message that he preached on humility, and really all his messages that he preached last last weekend at our, our annual Spiritual Life Weekend, and um, that really um, serves as the kickoff of our uh, new year, if you will. We kind of go with the school year, kind of fall to spring, and uh, so we, uh, I've, been, I've been anticipating this Sunday for a, a number of weeks now because it's an opportunity for us to get back into our study of the Gospel of John. And uh, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7 where we left off uh, midsummer. And uh, it's been a while since we were in the book of John, and uh, we have some new people that weren't here when we began our study the same time last fall. It's hard to believe it's been a year since we started our study, but hey, we made it through six chapters in a year. That's pretty good. And uh, we're making some progress here. So I thought it'd be helpful just to provide you with another copy of the overview and the outline that I handed out originally. This should be in all of your bulletins this morning, and it's just a little um, thing I like to do for me personally to try to say. Uh, say what the book's all about in just a summary form and then to give a little outline that serves as kind of as a roadmap so we kind of know where we're at at any given point in our study of this book. And I just want to point out to you in the outline, just the general outline there, that we are uh, still in the phase of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, chapters 1 through 12 just cover the few years that he ministered publicly before he went private uh, with his disciples before he was uh, actually crucified. And then uh, more specifically, John here in chapters 5 through 10, uh, where we find ourselves, is simply uh, giving evidence to the growing opposition uh, to Jesus Christ. And uh, after he presented himself as the Son of God, obviously that didn't go over real big with the majority of people, and, uh, and, and they began to oppose him more and more to the point where they'll ultimately reject him and crucify him. And so we're there in the section uh, where Jesus is being opposed. And as I said, we left off midsummer in chapter 7 where Jesus was being goaded by his unbelieving brothers to take advantage of the, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it was called, to, to show the world once and for all that he truly was the Messiah. Now, the reason why they thought this was the ideal occasion uh, to do this is because the Feast of Booze was one of the three great feasts that God commanded the Jews to celebrate on an annual basis. So it commemorated uh, God's provision for the nation of Israel while they wandered in the wilderness uh, after he delivered them from from bondage to Egypt. And during this week-long celebration, the Jews would live in these makeshift huts. They would go out of their houses and they would live outside, out in the backyard or up on their roof uh, in these little huts made of branches and leaves, which, which, which was meant to symbolize Uh, their lives as nomads before they had a permanent dwelling uh, in the promised land. And so they would celebrate the ingathering of the harvest. It was during harvest time in the fall. And they would also anticipate the coming of the Messiah who would reign over them and restore peace and prosperity to the land of Israel. So again, even from our vantage point, this does seem like a perfect opportunity for Jesus to officially present himself as Israel's Messiah. And yet, as we learned last time, Jesus was sensitive to God's timetable and knew that the climactic moment of his ministry was not to be at the Feast of Booze, but at the Feast of what? Passover, which would, was still about six months away um, in the springtime. 
Jesus was, uh, verse 6 in, in John chapter 7, you can see this. Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. In other words, he was referring to God's timetable. Jesus also was aware that the Jewish religious leaders at the time were plotting to kill him and would have been expecting him to capitalize on this huge national gathering. In fact, in verse 11, he said that so the Jews were seeking him at last, or excuse me, at the feast, and were saying, where is he? They, they were wondering why he wasn't there already. Um, they were looking for him uh, to arrest him. And furthermore, Jesus also understood that the entire Jewish population was all over the map as far as who he was. There was all sorts of rumors and opinions uh, flying around, uh, and he didn't want to stir up the crowds unnecessarily or prematurely, even if it was uh, to rally behind him um, or to crucify him, as we know they would ultimately do. Look at verse 12. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. So you can just see the opposing views of Christ in that one verse. So some were saying he was a good guy, he was a good man. But listen, a good man doesn't lie. It doesn't claim to be someone who's not. He especially wouldn't try to get people to think he was God. That's not a good person. Um, others were convinced that he was nothing but a deceiver, and he was leading people astray. And as we'll see in just a moment, one of the most popular opinions uh, about Jesus was that he was demon-possessed. Look at verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon. In fact, they went on in chapter 8, verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Not only did they say he was demon-possessed and, and performing uh, the miracles that he did in the power of the devil. Um, some thought he was just flat-out crazy, deranged. Look at John chapter 10, verse 20. It says, Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to this guy? He's a nut job. In fact, back in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it says that his family was so concerned for him that they went to retrieve him and bring him back home because they thought he had lost his mind. So even his own mother and, 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 and brothers and sisters felt like he was, he'd, he'd gone off the deep end. He needed to be, you know, the men in the white coats needed to come get him and take him away. Well, regardless of what people thought of Jesus, they were afraid to make their opinion public because of what the religious leaders might do to them. We learn that in verse 13, John chapter 7, verse 13. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. All that to say, rather than making a grand entrance at the uh, Feast of Booths, Jesus thought it best to secretly enter Jerusalem without drawing any attention to himself. And we, we learn that in verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up not publicly, but as if in secret. Well, you know that wherever Jesus went, it was hard uh, for him to remain 
in the shadows for long, right? It was only a matter of time before uh, he went public. And so halfway through the celebration, Jesus shows up in the temple to clear up the confusion about who he was and where he had come from and where he was going. And he clearly and boldly claimed that he was the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. That, that this whole celebration anticipated him. He was the Messiah that they were looking forward to coming. Now, obviously, those claims um, were extremely controversial and resulted in many questioning him. Some actually believed him, and the Jewish leaders uh, tried to arrest him. And so we're going to look this morning at uh, verses 14 through 36. And we're going to just see some controversial claims, three to be exact, three controversial claims uh, that Jesus made regarding who he was, where he came from, and where he was going. And I would just add this, and why it should matter to you, okay? We're not just sitting here to uh, increase our knowledge, per se, but we need to make sure we're hearing uh, God's word uh, to our lives, specifically, practically, today, for us. And so what we're going to see here, the claims that Jesus made 2,000 years ago, matter to you today. So what are these three claims? Well, there was a claim regarding his authority. He claimed that he taught for God. I teach for God is basically what he said. That's verses 14 and 24. He made a claim regarding his ancestry, that he came from God. That's verses 25 through 31. And then he gave what I would call an advisory statement here. And basically he said, I will return to God. And you need to make sure that you know uh, how to get where I'm going after I leave. And so let's look at these three controversial claims. First of all, his authority, uh, when he basically said, I teach for God. Look at verse 14. But it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? And so halfway through the week-long uh, Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus appeared in the porch area of the temple where uh, people would assemble to hear prominent rabbis expound on the Old Testament scriptures. And the people were just amazed by Jesus' teaching. Uh, they had never heard anybody teach with such authority. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it says that the people were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. In other words, the, the scribes were easy to blow off because they were just kind of na 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 right? There was no authority to what they had to say. They were just quoting some other rabbi. Whereas Jesus had this profound grasp of the scriptures, and even though he, he had never received any formal training in the rabbinical schools of the day, which was a big deal uh, to the, the Jewish leadership. And so they had these training schools, and probably the most well-known was the one that Gamaliel uh, oversaw. He was the one that educated the Apostle Paul. Paul talked about that in Acts chapter 22, verse 3. But Jesus, on the other hand, um, didn't need a teacher, didn't need a human teacher, uh, didn't need a human rabbi. Why? Because he had divine wisdom and insight. His knowledge of Scripture and spiritual things was not educational, it was supernatural. And he says that in verses 16 through 18. Notice he says, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So what, Jesus, what set Jesus apart and his teaching apart from all the other rabbis of the day was its source. The rabbis received their teaching from other men, whereas Jesus received his teaching directly from God himself. Notice chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus talks about this a number of times. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I can do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And then chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 49, He says something similar. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So Jesus was simply the mouthpiece of God. I mean, when people heard Jesus speak, they were literally hearing the voice of God. Now, we've talked about this in years past, about the dynamic of biblical preaching, right? That when the Word of God is taught, it's as if you're hearing the Word of God. First um, Thessalonians chapter 2.13, Paul was thanking the believers in Thessalonica. He said, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. In other words, when you heard me preach, Paul said, and teach, you didn't just say, oh, that's just Paul, or that's just one man's opinion. No, you received it as it actually is the word of God. It was God's word, not Paul's words. And while no preacher today can, can claim to receive direct revelation from God, um, I can't say, you know, God spoke to me in my study this week. You know, he actually audibly, you know, taught me what he wanted me to tell you today. Uh, he did teach me by his spirit through his word, right? As I studied God's word and asked him to give me insight and wisdom into the scriptures and, 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 and to help me faithfully exposit and explain the scriptures. And so, therefore, I can get up here and I can and I must speak with authority as one speaking the very words of God. Obviously not in the same way that, that Jesus did, right? Because he was God. He is God. But Paul told, Tim, uh, Paul told Titus in Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. So anyone who proclaims the word of God and the power of the spirit of God can claim the authority of God. And hopefully you know that, that uh, when we, anybody who ever stands in this pulpit and opens up this book and accurately explains it, um, you're hearing the voice of God because this is God's voice, His Word. Well, no matter how impactful um, a preacher's ministry is, anyone who proclaims the Word and the power of the Spirit of God, they know that they can't take credit for the impact that their preacher and teaching makes in the lives of their hearers. I mean, you can't 
say anything more encouraging to me personally than to say, Ken, I just want you to know my life has completely changed ever since I started coming to this church. I mean, I am so different. I'm a different person, uh, you know, now that I've been here a year or 10 years, um, and, and, and I just appreciate your, your ministry and your teaching. Well, guess what? You and I both know I can't take any credit for that. It's all this. Amen? It's this. It's the Word of God. My job is to get out of the way, right, and just let God's Word do its work and, and perform its work in those who believe. And that's the dynamic that takes place when the Word of God is explained. It accomplishes the work. So, so we can't take any glory. We can't take, get, take any credit for that. And, and, and that's exactly what Jesus was saying here. Notice in verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus knew that God deserved all the glory. He refused to take any credit for what he taught or how he taught, but he simply gave all the glory to God. And by the way, I think one of the the easiest and quickest ways to discern a false teacher, and there's a lot of them out there, you know that, right? A lot lot of guys out there saying, hey, listen to me, I'm teaching you the truth, and they are not teaching the truth. Well, how do you know? Well, I think it's obvious if they're seeking their own glory or their own gain. And I'm not talking about judging motives here because no one can judge the motive of a person's heart, right? But there's things that are so obvious in the church today, you can tell that person is all about them, right? It's all about them and they're seeking glory for themselves or they're, or they're seeking gain. Hey, you know, uh, I'll send you this if you send me this. And, and then you hear about all the you know, cars they have and the, the mansion they live in and the, the jets they fly to and from their events in, right? And you're like, are you kidding me? We're, we're being so easily duped by someone who's clearly in it for the money? And it seems to be more about building their own kingdom than God's kingdom. And they teach whatever they want to teach, even if it isn't what God has said in his word. And that's the bottom line, right? Just be a good Berean. How do you know if you're you're listening to a true teacher? Is is what he's saying matching up with the Bible? If it doesn't match up with, if you can't find what he's saying in the Bible, then he's a false teacher. So Jesus only and always taught what God had taught him. Nothing false or untrue ever came out of his mouth. Why? Because, as it says in Scripture, it's impossible for God to what? To lie. Numbers 23, 19, Hebrews 6, 18. So Jesus' motives were absolutely pure, and his message was absolutely true. You say, well, how, how can I know that for sure? I mean, I always wonder if, if I'm just being duped by this whole Christianity thing, and is the Bible really the Word of God, and is Jesus really who he said he was, and did he really speak for God? Is he really real, and is what he said true, and can I trust my, my soul and my eternal destiny to this guy I've never met before that lived 2,000 years ago? How can you know for sure? Look at verse 17. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will... He will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. In other words, in order to know for sure that Jesus spoke from God, you must be willing to obey God's word. And if you submit to Christ's commands, then you'll know what he said is true. 
And so you can't just wait around for God to zap you with the faith to believe the claims of Christ. You need to willingly submit your life to Christ and humbly obey what he said. And guess what? That's when God will confirm to you that Jesus is everything he claimed to be. One commentator said it this way, unbelief is not basically a lack of information, but a will and rebellion against God. The reason why people don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ is not because they lack information. You don't lack information. Your will is rebellious against God. You don't want to submit your life. I thought I might ask you this morning, just honestly, just by a show of hands, how many of you know for sure that Jesus' words are sure? Raise your hand. How many of you know for sure? I mean, you really know for sure. Not maybe. You know for sure that Jesus' words are true. Okay, great. I love that. It's awesome. My second question is, how do you know for sure? How do you know for sure? Well, obviously, because the Bible says it, and God has granted us faith to believe the Bible, right? As the very words of God. But I would also submit to you that you know for sure because you did what Jesus said to do and what he said would happen, happened to you. That if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And you're different today, aren't you? After receiving Jesus Christ, after repenting of your sin, after trusting him as your Lord and Savior, you're different. And while we really ultimately rely on the word of God, right, the canon of Scripture uh, as our basis for faith, I think there's something to say about our conversion and the transformation, the change that, that God accomplished in our lives through Christ. And I think one of the greatest evidences that Christianity is true, and it's not just another religion in the world, is all the people all over the world whose lives have been radically transformed radically changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's one of the greatest evidences that it's true. Look at the disciples. These, these, these 12 guys, right, who were, who were so scared, they were held up in the upper room for fear of their lives, right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, and these guys literally turned the world upside down. Fearless, bold witnesses for Christ. What happened, right? Jesus is what made the difference in their lives. Someone said that this here is a wonderful promise for everyone earnestly seeking the truth that if a person is sincere and truly wants to know what is the truth, God will reveal it to him. That's what Jesus is saying. Well, look at verse 19. Jesus goes on, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And Jesus knew that the reason the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him was because he had violated the law. He had violated the Mosaic law by healing the paralytic at the pool uh, on the Sabbath. Remember back in Matthew, or excuse me, Matthew John chapter 5, verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said, hey, I know you're trying to kill me because I, I broke the commandment, right, of, of remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. But can I just point out to you that 
you're breaking the commandment, maybe the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, okay? You're sitting here contemplating wanting to murder me. You're hating me. And so you are breaking the law yourselves. And, and the Jews gloried in the fact that they possessed the law, that somehow that set them apart and made them special, but they failed to realize that there was no virtue in merely possessing the law if you weren't going to obey the law, if you weren't going to keep the law. And verse 20, he goes on, the crowd answered, you have a demon, who seeks to kill you? Well, apparently there were some people in the crowds there that were unaware of the, the murderous intentions of their religious leaders, and so they accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. Probably more likely they're saying, dude, you're paranoid. Who's trying to, we're not trying to kill you. Why are you being so paranoid? And so they wondered who he thought was trying to kill, them, kill him. Verse 21, Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, it was originally um, uh, initiated by Abraham. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Again, Jesus was referring to this miracle that he had performed, which had stirred up the majority of the opposition against him at the time. And he was simply here again pointing out their hypocrisy in that they had no problem circumcising a male child on the Sabbath if the eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, which it did at times. Leviticus 12.3, it was part of the Mosaic law. It was required by law that you circumcise your male child on the eighth day. And if you were, right, if you gave birth eight days before a Sabbath, it was possible that you were having to circumcise on the Sabbath. So let's say they would break one command, right, to keep another command. And so Jesus is simply saying, listen, how much more important is healing an entire man's body on the Sabbath than performing a small surgical procedure on a part of a child's body? I mean, this is ludicrous. You got this thing all messed up in your mind. You're so legalistic. This is a work of necessity. In the same way circumcision is a work of necessity, so is healing this man. It was a work of necessity. And then notice verse 24. He says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. The problem with the, with the religious leaders in that day is that they wrongly judged Jesus according to what he looked like on the outside rather than what was on the inside. Which, by the way, God had confronted uh, Samuel way back when, right, in the Old Testament, when he was trying to, uh, God had sent him to the family of Jethro to find the next king, right? To anoint the king uh, in place of Saul. And uh, he was looking at all these strong, strapping looking sons. And he thought, surely these are the guy, one of these guys is it. And then he said, nope, sorry, none of these guys. And then the little teenage boy comes running in the house from tending the sheep. And God says, that's the guy. I want you to anoint him. And Samuel's like, What? I'm going to anoint this guy, the little whippersnapper, David, right? And what did, what did God say? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this young man had a, was a man after God's heart, had a heart after God. 
So he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Notice he doesn't say don't judge. He just said don't judge according to externals, right? But he goes on to say to judge with righteous judgment. And I point that out because I think a lot of people in our world, especially in our country, and I would say particularly unbelievers, their favorite verse even though they don't know anything else, about, anything else about the Bible, their favorite verse is Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged, right? How many times have you heard that? Oh, judge not lest ye be judged. As if we're never, ever supposed to make any judgment of any kind. That's not at all what Jesus was meaning when he said, judge not lest ye be judged. He was, he was really confronting the, the Pharisees in the way that they were superficially and hypocritically and self-righteously judging other people. He wasn't saying we should never judge the rightness or wrongness of anything someone says or does. I mean, in fact, back in Matthew 7, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, God does want us to help other people with their sin. He does want us to point sin out in other people's lives, as long as we are doing it in our own lives first, right? That we're not being hypocrites, we're not being self-righteous, that we're sensitive to our own sin, and then once, once we're, as Fred said in our equipping class this, this morning, it, it, when we're counseling ourselves, right, only those people that can, are counseling themselves are in a position to counsel others. And so there are times when we need to judge, as Jesus said here, with righteous judgment, we need to make moral and theological judgments. We need to exercise discernment. We need to be able to recognize heresy and say that is wrong. We also need to be able to recognize um, immorality and say that is wrong. And make judgments. Not, again, hypocritically, self-righteously, looking down our noses as if we never sin, Right? You may have seen this because they were kind of promoting it. It seemed like all over the internet this, this week. But from time to time, I'll pop on YouTube just to kind of get a feel for what the world is promoting at any given time. What are they spotlighting? And so I checked it out this week, and the very first video that they were spotlighting was, was an engagement um, and a proposal. It was a propo- proposal which, you know, we see that oftentimes, you know, these flash mobs and somebody organizes this big thing to propose to their, you know, to their fiance or to their, their girl that they want to marry. And, and oftentimes really fun and cute, right? So I thought, I want to check this out. And, you know, not that I need to, any more ideas, right? I already did that once for my wife. But, uh, but the point is, it's fun to see what, what, how creative guys can be. Well, I pop it on and right away I realize this is not a guy proposing to a girl. This is a guy proposing to a guy. And it was a full-blown three, you know, three, four-minute deal in a, some Home Depot somewhere in Salt Lake, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, and, and it was this big production, and, and uh, I mean, it just honestly made me sick to my stomach watching this. I mean, we all know that the, the gay marriage thing is just kind of building steam in our country, but this was just like in your face, right? And uh, what was so tragic to me was this was not just a bunch of their peers dancing and doing the little 
getting down on their knee together and all this kind of stuff. But there was, it, it appeared to be parents coming out, older people coming out and giving their blessing on this. There was little children coming out with signs and things that were promoting this whole thing. Like, you got to be kidding me. And listen, when I got done watching that video, I, I still believed that I was the worst sinner I knew, right? And I still believe I'm the worst sinner I know. But I'm just going to say that was wrong. That's wrong. It's a complete, 100% violation of God's morality as revealed in his word. It's wrong. And I'm not judging in a self-righteous, um, critical, hypocritical way. I'm making a moral judgment based on the authority of Scripture. That's what Jesus is talking about, that, that we shouldn't judge by appearance, but we should judge with righteous judgment. And so don't ever fall into the, well, I, we can't say anything. We shouldn't judge lest we be judged, right? No, judge with righteous judgment. And so that's his authority that he claimed. Secondly, his, his ancestry, not only did he teach for God, he came from God. In verse 25, notice, so some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. So again, the questions that the crowd was wrestling with had, all, had everything to do with, with Christ's origin, where he came from. And uh, John was zeroing in here on another segment of the crowd who were aware of the officials' uh, intentions to, uh, to, to kill Jesus. And they were puzzled by the fact that Jesus was still allowed to, to, to move around and speak so freely uh, and boldly. And if the, if the rulers hated him so much, then why would they allow him to continue? They began to wonder, well, maybe the religious leaders have concluded that he is the Messiah after all. And yet in their minds, they knew that was an impossibility because they knew that Jesus was from Nazareth. And to me, this doesn't make any sense, but because we know that the Old Testament is very clear that the Messiah would be born where? In Bethlehem, right? Even the religious leaders at the time when Herod said, when the wise men came and said, hey, we, we know there's a king who was born, and Herod's like, there it was. And he felt threatened, and he asked, the, he asked the chief priest to come and say, hey, when was this king supposed to be born? They said, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so they knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, and yet the popular legend in those days was that no one would know the origin of the Messiah, that he would mysteriously and suddenly appear out of nowhere, and no one would know where he came from. Well, notice verse 28, then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, you both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So notice how Jesus raised his voice at this point. He didn't want to make sure no one missed what he was about to say, and he basically mimicked their words back to them in order to imply that, that they didn't know him as well as they thought they did. You say you know me, you say you know where I'm from, but you really don't. Yes, I'm from Nazareth, that's true, but I'm also from heaven. I was born here on earth, yes, that is true, but I was sent here by God, who I've lived with for all eternity, 
and I am just like the Father in every respect, and I know him intimately, then guess what? You don't. Notice verse 28. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I mean, them are fighting words for an Orthodox Jew. Why? Because they prided themselves in knowing the one true God. And so this was a very serious accusation that Jesus was making. You don't know God. You say you know God, but you don't know God. And they, they understood exactly what Jesus was, was implying here. And that's why we see in verse 30, so they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So they knew he was claiming equality with God here, and, and, and which in their minds was sheer blasphemy. And so they attempted to arrest him. And yet he eluded their grasp as he had already done on a number of occasions because it wasn't the time the Father had ordained. And we know that God protected and preserved his son until the time came for him to be arrested to be tried, to be crucified as a sacrifice for sin. Verse 31, notice the, the good news, the ray of light in the midst of this, all this opposition. It says, but many of the crowd believed in him. And they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And so there were some who were, who were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And, and it, it seems that they committed their lives to following him. And in their minds, there was nothing more that he could do or anyone could do for that matter to prove that he was the Messiah. And so I ask you this morning, are the words of Jesus enough for you? Are the miracles that are recorded in the scriptures enough for you? I mean, what more do you need to hear or see in order to commit your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What what more could you possibly need to hear? What more could you possibly need to see? Because guess what? You're not going to see anything more than what you see in Scripture. You're not going to hear anything more than what you hear in Scripture. That's why John wrote this gospel. He could have written a bunch of stuff, right? He said, man, I I didn't have time to put everything in here, but the things I did write to you, I wrote to you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that was his ancestry, where he came from. And then finally... We see Jesus' ad- advisory here, advisory or warning in verses 32 through 36 where he was prophesying about his return to the Father, his return to heaven. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So the Pharisees heard the all the buzz in the crowd, and they were concerned that the admiration for Christ would grow to a place where it would get out of control, and they wouldn't be able to uh, no longer control the masses, and so they wanted to nip this in the bud before that happened. And so the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish high court of the day, made up of Pharisees and the chief priests, which were mainly Sadducees, um, they dispatched their police force to bring Jesus in. Now, you've probably heard this in the past, but I think it's interesting to note that the Pharisees and the Sadducees despise one another. They were not on the same page doctrinally, um, and so they didn't work together real well. 
And uh, it's kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans, right? They just, yeah, yeah, this is what we believe is what you believe in. We ain't working together on anything. And we're going to do everything we can to oppose your, your, your uh, laws, and we're going to do everything to oppose what you're trying to do, right, what you're trying to accomplish. Well, guess what? The, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees laid aside their differences, even though they were huge differences, because of their hatred for Christ. They had one thing in common. They both hated Jesus Christ, and he was a threat to the religious establishment. And so they came together to arrest him. And notice verse 33, therefore Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So we know Jesus was alluding here to his imminent crucifixion, which would be followed by his resurrection, which would be followed by his ascension, when he would return to heaven to be with his father, to be seated at the right hand of God. And what he goes on to say here is that after he was gone, after he went back to heaven, those who rejected him as their Lord and Savior would seek him in vain. It would be too late. And so he was warning them that they were running out of time to repent of their sin and to place their faith in him. And if they didn't, they would end up dying in their sin and spending eternity in hell. Notice John 8, verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. I mean, this was a a, a sober warning to these religious leaders. And notice verse 35, the Jews then said to one another, again, these are the Jewish religious leaders, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So here are the the men who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the day, scratching their head going, what is he talking about? I mean, is he talking about taking his message to the Jews who lived outside of Palestine, the the dispersion, the diaspora, as they were called, and and maybe uh, they speculated that while he was there, he might even teach the Gentiles that he was their Messiah as well, which was absolutely inconceivable to these self-righteous Jewish leaders that salvation was for anyone but them. And so this was just one more reason to reject Jesus as the Messiah. I think one commentator said it well here. He said, the Jews here illustrate the blindness of unbelief. There is no heart as dark as the heart that refuses to accept the Lord Jesus. In our day, we have the expression, there are none so blind as those who will not, what? See, right? This was exactly the case here. They did not want to accept the Lord Jesus, and therefore they could not. The same commentator goes on and says the words of this verse are especially solemn. They remind us that there is such a thing as the passing opportunity. Men may have the opportunity to be saved today. If they reject it, they may never have the opportunity again. Do you believe that? That there's an invisible line that all of us could cross at some point in our lives? And none of us know where that, when that, where that is and when that is. And 
I mean, there is a sense that as long as we're breathing, there's still hope, right? As long as we're, as long as we're breathing, there's still hope that we can be saved. But in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God, there are these warnings in the scriptures like this one. For example, Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's like, when, when is that? Like right now, right? Calling on him while he is near, while he may be found. You can find him right now. He is near right now. He is speaking to you right now. So seek him, call upon him now. 2 Corinthians 6, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In other words, you're receiving, God is being gracious to you right now. He's communicating the gospel, the good news, how you can have your sins forgiven and how you can be saved from God's wrath and and how you can know for sure you're going to heaven. God is being gracious to you right now. He says, don't receive that grace in vain. He says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day. And the writer of Hebrews quoted Psalm 95, which says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, don't put off coming to Christ. Because today may be, in the providence of God, the last chance that you ever have to repent of your sins and believe in him. And I don't want to be like those, you know, the classic um, old-time evangelists. It's like, you know, you could get in your car today, and you could go out on that freeway, and you could, right? And everybody's like, But listen, I mean, that could be manipulative, Right? could force you to make an emotional decision. It's not a genuine decision, but hey, the scripture is very clear that if you don't take advantage of the opportunity God is giving you right now, he could bar the doors of heaven to you forever. And this warning that he gave to these Jewish religious leaders that you cannot come where I am will apply to you. I mean, that, that, there's nothing worse that you could hear from Jesus Christ. If he were to look at you and say, you know what? You can't come where I'm going. In other words, you're never going to heaven. There's only one other option, right? And we know what that is. But let me encourage you that if you do repent and believe, you can be encouraged by the promise that Jesus made to his followers in John chapter 14. He was about to get alone with his disciples in the upper room. And this is part of that great upper room discourse. John 14, verse 1, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. In other words, he's talking, hey guys, I'm going. I told the, I told the, the crowds, I told the Jewish religious, I'm, I'm out of here. And if they don't receive me, they can't come where I'm going. But listen, I want to tell you that I am going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. And if you're a Christian today, if you're someone that has 
repented of your sin and has trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then guess what? Jesus says to you today, you can come where I am. You can come where I am. In fact, I'm working on your place right now and I'm going to come back and get you and take you there. Well, what an encouragement that is from God's word. Do you know the way to heaven? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and and how pointed it is. Lord, how practical it is. And Lord, uh, I pray that there'd be no one that could leave here today not getting why this message matters to them personally. Because all of us are destined for either heaven or hell. And what we do with Jesus will determine where we end up. And so, Lord, thank you for this study in, our, in, in this gospel. And I pray that uh, the truth that has been proclaimed this morning would uh, pierce hearts, would encourage hearts, comfort hearts, and change hearts, we pray for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.